This will be a game changer for you. This will be a game changer in life. This will be a game changer in your walk with God if you can get what I'm going to share with you today. This is going to be an incredibly powerful word, and I believe that this is going to be a pivotal point for some of us in our walk with God, okay? The title of my message today is this, the victory comes before the battle, okay? The victory comes before the battle, and you can't talk about battles without looking at one of the greatest battles in Scripture that we have, and that's the battle between David and Goliath. Everybody say David David. and Goliath. It's a classic. It's a classic. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to just skim through this and pull some biblical truth from it that's going to impact our lives today. 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 4, says, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. How tall was Goliath? Six cubits and a span. Anybody here this morning, six cubits and a span? You know how tall that was? Do you even know what they used to do to measure a cubic, you know, or a span? A span was half a cubic. A cubic was a measure of distance that they would use. They would take from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, and that was called a cubit. Now, that wasn't exactly the most accurate way to measure things back then. It was kind of approximate because in case you didn't notice, people have different size arms. Okay, so to say that Goliath was as tall as he was, we're kind of approximating here. We know that he was at least nine foot six. Okay, at minimum, he was nine foot six. He could have been as tall as 12 feet tall. He was an NBA coach's dream come true. All right, nobody would have dunked on Goliath. Goliath would have dunked on everybody. Probably he would be looking down at the goal. He was a big dude. He was huge. He was tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. All right, that's almost, give or take, right around 125 pounds. And when you go into battle, you want to wear armor that's light. You want to wear armor that lets you get out where you're going quickly so that you can move with speed and agility. And so a lightweight set of armor for Goliath was 125 pounds. He was a strong dude. That's what this verse is telling us. These things are in this verse for a reason, to tell us Goliath was big and Goliath was strong. You didn't want to mess with Goliath. He was like a Sherman tank out on the battlefield. Um, On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. That means it was big, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. All right, that means that the tip of his spear weighed, give or take, 15 pounds. If you want to get an idea of how strong you've got to be to wield a weapon like that, just go home and take 15 pounds and put it on the end of a long stick and see if you can pick it up and then see how far you can throw something like that. Goliath was strong. And then... It says, his shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, you want to talk about one of the most useless jobs in all of history. Being a shield bearer for Goliath. Number one, Goliath was big. So you have to be hauling around a huge shield to protect this guy. But you're talking about, I'm the bodyguard for one of the baddest dudes walking the planet right now. You know, he would be like a bodyguard for Chuck Norris. You know, or a bodyguard for Bruce Lee. You're just praying that the bodyguard will take you out because you don't want to deal with Chuck Norris or Bruce Lee. That was the deal with Goliath's shield bearer. You, it's like the most useless job going on at the time. But Goliath was big and Goliath was strong. Now, I know most of us know how this story is going to end. How many of you have ever heard the story of David and Goliath before? Yeah. Bedtime stories growing up. You hear it in, in Sunday school at church. Vacation Bible School, David and Goliath. You're going to hear it preached on a lot in church circles. David and Goliath, David and Goliath, because it's a classic story, but it's so full of biblical truth. I'm going to tell you how this ends, and then we're going to get into the message today. As a Philistine in 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attacking, David ran toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down 
on the ground. Everybody go, woo! Yes, David took out Goliath. It happened exactly the way that it was supposed to. David walked up, he took on the, on the giant, and the giant fell because God was with David. It's a great big victory that day. That's how it's supposed to happen. But David didn't defeat Goliath on the battlefield. David faced Goliath on the battlefield. He didn't defeat Goliath on the battlefield, though. Now, I want you to pay attention to what I'm going to say over the next few minutes because this will change your life and your walk with God if you will get this stuff in your heart today. Online, tune in because this is a game changer for you. Listen to me. David defeated Goliath before he faced Goliath. David defeated Goliath before he faced Goliath. I'm going to say it one more time. David defeated Goliath before he faced Goliath. Because David was prepared for the battle before he got to the battle. You know, if I, if I want to <clears throat> get to the point where I can bench 300 pounds like I used to a million years ago, uh, if I tried that now, my elbows would explode and fly out and hurt somebody, you know. But uh, if I wanted to be able to bench 300 pounds again, what would I have to be able to do in order to bench 300 pounds? You would, you would have to be able to bench 300 pounds to be able to bench 300 pounds, right? It's a simple fact. It's not rocket surgery or anything like that, you know. You'd have to be able to bench 300 pounds in order to bench 300 pounds. If I wanted to run a marathon or if you wanted to run a marathon, in order to run that marathon, we would have to be in the kind of shape that would allow us to run that marathon, right? Okay, in order for David to defeat Goliath, David needed to be at the place where he was able to defeat Goliath. That means that David was at that place before he stepped onto the battlefield. He faced Goliath on the battlefield, but he defeated Goliath before he got there. Now listen, I see so many Christians struggling in their walk with God and struggling to deal with the issues that they face in life, and they struggle to deal with the attack of the enemy on their lives and they, I see them fail and fall and fail and fall over and over again on the battlefield where they're facing a giant, where they're facing that Goliath, where they're facing the enemy while he's trying to attack them spiritually or while he's trying to attack their families or while they're dealing with some kind of dysfunction in their family. They lose the battle because they were not prepared before they stepped on the battlefield. We have got to make sure that we are prepared for the day of battle before we get to the day of battle. You understand what I'm saying? So there are some things that I want to look at in the life of David that I believe helped prepare him for that face-off with Goliath. And we're going to dig into this today. I hope it speaks to your heart like it spoke to mine. I believe this is going to be a game-changer for a lot of us out there. The first thing that David did to prepare himself for Goliath was this, that David grew in the field. David grew in the field. What did David do before he faced Goliath, before he became king over Israel? He was a shepherd. He watched over the family livestock, and he watched over the family sheep. David was the youngest son, which means that he got, handled all the, he got handed all the junk work that nobody else in the family wanted to do. You're the low man on the totem pole. That's what you get stuck with. You get stuck with doing the stuff nobody else wanted to do. Nobody wanted to be with the sheep. Nobody wanted to watch over them. But David tapped into something in this season of obscurity in his life that if we'll pay attention, this will change us. Listen, David grew his relationship with God when he was in the field. It was out there in that field that David wrote a lot of the Psalms that we read in the Bible. It was out there in that field where he was just him and God isolated watching over those sheep, doing something minuscule where he was able to connect with God in a way that at the time, I believe, really no one else on the planet was able to connect with God because God called David a man after his own heart. When God was searching back and forth through Israel to find somebody to replace Saul as king, David was the only one that he saw as qualified to do it because of the heart that David had, because of the relationship that David had with God. David had a relationship with God. 
Listen, guys, I know this is like Bible 101, but we have got to make sure that we have a strong relationship with God. Because everything in our arsenal to fight the enemy and everything in our arsenal to help us not just cope with the things that we face in life, but overcome those things, it flows out of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is where we're able to see that trust developed. Our relationship with God is where we're able to see that peace developed. Our relationship with God is where we're able to become content in our own skin because we are confident in who we are in the eyes of our creator. We get our value from him, not from others. And this just sticks out like a sore thumb in David's life because David was watching a sheep and he got called out of the field to stand in front of the prophet Samuel and his family. Samuel was going to anoint him to be king over Israel. David is anointed in front of all the people that were there, in front of his family, to be king over Israel. And where did David go after that? Right back out to the field. So you don't get humility like that unless you know who you are in your relationship with God. You don't get contentment like that unless you are solid in your relationship with God. You'll never be anything great in life. You'll never be anything great in the kingdom of God until you learn how to be humble and be content with who you are in your relationship with God. Because when that happens, you don't have anything to prove. You don't have to be anything to anybody. All you have to do is know that you're pleasing your Father in heaven. And that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Everybody likes to blow the trumpet and talk about what God's called them to do. And everybody likes to blow the trumpet and shout about the the call of God on their life. And God's going to do this. And I'm believing God for that. But if you don't have the humility to get back up and serve in the field after you've been recognized by God in a way like that, you have no future in the kingdom of God. God operates on humility birthed out of relationship with him. David had that. Because he grew in the field, he was isolated. He was isolated, just him and God. And his relationship with God grew in a powerful way. Psalm 112, starting at verse 6, shows us the benefit of a strong relationship with God in the face of problems that we're going to have to encounter in life. Psalm 112, starting at verse 6, It reads, surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph over their foes. Now let's go back and let's dissect this verse just a little bit. It says, surely the righteous, the righteous... When you see the word righteous used, especially in the Old Testament, it is speaking to someone standing with God. It's speaking to someone's relationship with God. Their righteousness, they only get from their obedience to the word of God out of their relationship with God. So righteous here speaks to relationship. Surely those who have relationship or who are in right standing with God will never be shaken. If you had to do an honest evaluation of your life right now, could it be said that you're a person that is not shaken by what happens to you in life? Because when you have a solid relationship with God and you've learned to trust him and you've learned to lean into that walk with him and you've learned to operate in that peace because you know that he's in control, you'll never be shaken. That doesn't mean stuff's not going to come against you, but when it does, it means that it's not going to take you out. Says they will be remembered forever. They will look at this. Have no fear of bad news. Have no fear of bad news. That doesn't mean that bad news isn't going to come, but it means that when it does come, we're walking in such solid peace in our relationship with God that it's not going to shake us. Their hearts are steadfast. They're steady. They're constant. They're consistent. Why? Because they're trusting in the Lord. What's your first reaction when bad news hits you? Is it to trust in God to work it out or is it to freak out and stress out trying to figure out how you are going to work it out for yourself? See, that's the difference in operation between someone who has peace that comes from the relationship with God and someone who's trying or trusting in their own strength to work something out. 
Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. And in the end, they will look in triumph over their foes. David was able to function in the heat of battle when everybody else was operating in fear, when everybody else was running in the face of bad news because he was righteous before God and he had a relationship with God. That is the main thing. That is the first thing. That's what David had that helped him defeat Goliath before he faced Goliath. He was prepared in his relationship with God. The second thing is this, that David went to the school of the lion and the bear. He went to the school of the lion and the bear. Everybody go, rah! See, I'm trying to wake y'all up because y'all were were struggling. Y'all partied a little too hard last night for the 4th of July. I get that. Um, David went to the school of the lion and the bear. Okay? David had fought a few battles before he fought the battle. He went to the school of the lion and the bear, and it taught him something. He, he was even having this conversation with Saul before he went out to fight Goliath, and Saul was kind of trying to talk him out of it. He's like, bro, you, you don't understand. Goliath is a bad dude. He's been fighting battle since he was a youth. He's a Sherman tank out there. Bro, he's going to kill you. You don't need to go out there, all right? Goliath is bad news. And David's like, yeah, 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 I get that. But here, you, you need to understand, because that's how David talked, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you need to understand this, though. I get that Goliath's a bad guy. I get that he's tough and all that. But when I was watching my sheep out in the field, because I was faithful doing what God called me to do, building my relationship with him, there was a lion and a bear that came in, and they tried to run off with the sheep that I was supposed to protect. So I did what I was supposed to do. I chased after them. And sometimes I'd get the lion and the bear to let go of the sheep and I'd rescue them. But sometimes they would turn on me and I'd have to kill them. And then David made this statement that blew me away when I read it. He said in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, he said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David didn't say, I know he's bad, but I'm the baddest dude walking this earth right now. Because I guarantee you that joker hadn't killed a lion or a bear by himself with his own bare hands. He didn't say, I'm the man. He said, I did it because God gave me the victory. The Lord rescued me. See, it's the focus of David because David had his relationship with God where it needed to be. So David realized who his source was. David realized who his protection was. And David realized who his deliverer was. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. See, David had fought a couple of battles. And David had seen God be faithful in those battles. Because David was obedient and listened to God and pressed into those battles that God was calling him to fight with the lion and the bear, God was able to prove himself faithful to David and establish a track record that David could trust in. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if God knows what he's doing when he throws situations at us today. Maybe he's trying to prepare us for the battles that we're going to face tomorrow. And he knows that if we don't learn how to defeat the lion and the bear today, we're never going to be prepared to face the Goliath that's coming in our lives tomorrow. See, when I'm lining up in a battlefield, if it was ever going to happen, I don't want to be lined up next to the dude that's got shiny armor. I don't want to be lined up to the dude that's all shining in the sun and he's looking all GQ. Look at my helmet. It's all shiny. Look at my sword. It's razor sharp and it's shiny and clean. I don't want that guy next to me. I want to be standing next to somebody who's got some dirt on their armor. I want to be standing next to somebody that's got some dings on their armor, that's got some dents on their helmet, whose sword is eaten up with nicks and little, little broken parts because they've been used in a battle. I want that guy next to me because that guy has seen some battles, and I know I've got a better chance of surviving if I'm by that guy than I am by pretty boy over there with the shiny armor. I want to be around people that have been through a battle. Is there anybody in here this morning who's been through a few battles? Is there anybody in here this morning who have walked through some dark times in your life, who have set your eyes forward and saw the storm coming but trusted God anyway, who's had to go to war with the enemy 
enemy, for your family, for your job, for your life? Is there anybody in here that has fought some battles or anybody online, you fought some battles and you've seen God bring you through faithfully time and time again because God will use the battles of today to prepare you for the Goliath of tomorrow. It's what we do today that matters. What we do today that matters because it prepares us for tomorrow. See, y'all started to clap, but you're acting like you're in church. I wonder if there's anybody in here who's in love with God and can shamelessly give him praise for the next 10 seconds for the battles that he's brought you through in your life. Let's give God praise for what he's done in this place. See? Here's where we run into trouble because that makes for great preaching, but deep down inside most people, we want God to deliver us from opposition, but many times he wants to deliver us through it. And it's through the trials of life that were developed. Personally, like just me, I would much rather have God deliver me from a situation than deliver me through it. It's a whole lot easier. It is a whole lot easier. The Bible says in James, though, that that's not his strategy. James chapter 1, it says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. That seems so messed up. It's like some messed up theology. I'm supposed to be happy when I'm going through a tough time. Consider it pure joy when you go through trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance has to do its work so that at the end of it, you can become mature and complete, not lacking anything. God brings us through these seasons where we have to face the lion and we have to face the bear. And it's not fun. But he's bringing us through those seasons to prepare us for what he knows is going to happen down the line. See, we think time as today, tomorrow, the next day. You know, we take it one day at a time. God stands outside of time. He's eternal. He stands outside of time, and he's able to look in on time. And we know this because in Scripture, um, Jesus was talking to a group of people, and he made this statement. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Blows my mind. I can't even comprehend something like that. Before Abraham was, I am. But he was talking to a bunch of people hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham walked the earth. How can he be here, there, and there all at the same time? Because he's an eternal God that stands outside of time. God sees our life in a linear line. And he sees the key pivotal moments. And he sees the calling that he has on us. And he sees what he wants us to do. And he knows that if we're, we have a huge trial we're going to face here that's going to take us to a new level in our faith, a new level in our trust, and our new level in, in our understanding of who he is in our lives, then he's going to have to send a lion and a bear today to build us up to the place that we need to be when we get here so that we can drop that giant when we face him. He wants to prepare us to win the battle before we face the giant. Okay, when I play basketball, and don't laugh, because I did play <laughs> basketball, all right, Muggsy Bogues, Spud Webb, all my, all my boys out there, short people represent. I played basketball in high school, and we had a coach who I thought he was mean. He was just this merciless tyrant. You know, he would take us in and he would, um, we'd run through uh, warm-ups and then we run, you know, like five or six laps around the court just to get warmed up. And then we start going through drills and layup drills and, and ball handling drills. And then we start running plays. And that would be the bulk of the practice, preparing for the game coming up. And just about without fail, at the end of practice, we'd have to run these things called suicides. You guys that have played ball, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have to run suicides. So you start at the baseline, you run to the free flow line on your side of the court and back. Then you run to the half court line 
and all the way back. Then you run to the free throw line on the other side of the court and all the way back. Then you run all the way to the other side and if you're lucky, you get to stop there, but most of the time the whistle would blow and you'd have to come all the way back and then go back again and you'd be done with one suicide. We'd have to run like 10, 15, 20 of those things. At the end of practice, after we're already gassed out, he would push us and push us and push us. And then when we were spent, we're all just just sucking air, you know, our legs are weak and and we're just exhausted from the practice. And then we're exhausted from giving everything we got on the suicides because if we slacked, he would call us out. So you had to give everything that you had running these suicides or you'd have to run more suicides to pay for the one that you didn't run with all your heart, you know. And so when we were all done with that, he would say, okay, now we're going to shoot some free throws and we're going to work on some jump shots and we're going to do some three-on-three practices. Rubbery legs, could hardly stand, halfway cramping up, and we would start practicing free throws. And he said, because... Anybody can shoot a free throw with fresh legs. And anybody can hit a jump shot when their legs are fresh. He said, I'm going to push you guys past the level that you're able to give. And I'm going to teach you how to dig deeper. Because the games that we're going to play this year are going to be decided in the last couple of minutes of the game. And in the last couple of minutes of the game, it's not going to be the most talented team that's going to win. It's not going to be the tallest team that's going to win. Yes. It's going to be the team. It's going to be the team with the most endurance and the most heart that's able to gut out the last two minutes of the game. And so he prepped us for that. And we won a lot of ball games. At one point, I think we finished ranked uh, 20th in the, or 21st in the nation one year and then 19th in the nation the following year. Um, not that there was anything special about us. He just prepped us really well be able to play the game. God's doing the same thing with us. He's prepping us. He's prepping us so that when we reach those times, when we feel like we've got nothing left to give, we're able to lean into our relationship with him because we paid that price in the field like David did. And out of the strength that comes from that, he's able to get us through the battles that we're facing today to continue to build us up and prepare us for what he's calling us to do tomorrow. Now, if you can get that, I'm telling you guys, it will be a game changer because when you face trouble in your life and it seems like all hell is breaking loose, it should tell you to do a couple of things. One, I need to get into the word of God right now like I never have before. And two, I need to pay attention and make sure that I'm learning what God is trying to teach me through this series of trials that I'm walking through. Okay, whether God sent it or whether it's just something happening naturally because of the world or whether it's an attack of the enemy on your life, I promise you, God is able to use that situation to refine you and prepare you for what he's called you to do later. If David had not paid attention, he would have fell on that battlefield. If David was not strong in the Lord, if David had not had the track record of seeing God bring him through victory after victory, he would not have had the confidence or the courage or the skill set to be able to stand up and look Goliath in the eye. How many times have you, have me, have people that we know fall short of who God is calling them to be because we were not ready in the field and we tried to take the easy way out when fighting the lion and the bear and we were not prepared when it really counted the most and we fell back instead of pushing forward too many christians fall back instead of pushing forward too many christians miss out on victories in their lives because they don't take time to be prepared before they face the giant the third thing that david did was this David understood the power of covenant. He understood the power of covenant. Anytime you're you're reading the Bible and you see something mentioned more than once in the same chapter, or you see a phrase repeated um, in a verse or two, that's a signal to stop and to pay attention 
to what is being said. Like Jesus, when he was speaking sometimes, he would say, you know, he would use uh, the phrase, uh, verily, verily, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you. He's letting you know, hey, stop what you're doing and listen to what I'm about to say because this is some good stuff right here, okay? Um, a lot of times when Jesus was giving parables, he would uh, tell you know, in the, in the parable, he would use the same line a couple of times for emphasis to let you know that in this story, this is a larger truth that he's wanting you to get, okay? So in 1 Samuel 17, we see David use the same phrase a couple of times, and it's that way to let us know that we need to pay attention to what David is saying here because it's a key to this whole process that David is walking through. 1 Samuel 17, verse 26 David's out there in the battle camp, walking around, talking to the soldiers. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David's offense is the fa with, with, with Goliath defying God and insulting God. That's the whole deal with David. David's not trying to prove himself. David's trying to defend the honor of the Lord in this. I thought that was interesting. But look in 1 Samuel 17, verse 36. You're going to see this word again. 1 Samuel 17, 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. So twice, two different verses, you hear David identify Goliath as uncircumcised. And then you say, he says, who's this guy who thinks he can defy the armies of the living God? So David's anger in this is a righteous anger. But he's looking at the fact that Goliath is uncircumcised. Why is that important? Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had with Israel. Every man that was born as an Israelite circumcised on the sixth day as a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. See, everybody on this battlefield was looking at how big Goliath was. Everybody on this battlefield was looking at how strong Goliath was. They were looking at Nine foot six up to 12 feet tall Goliath. David was looking a little bit further south. I heard one preacher say it like this. They were looking up here. David was looking down here. And he said, that guy is not like us. We have a sign of the covenant that this guy does not have. We have a promise from God that this bozo isn't operating in. He's standing out there in his own brute strength, but we are standing under the protection of the covenant of the living God. Now, that was a big deal because back then, a covenant, like we read it today and we think, okay, a covenant, that's a promise that God made with his people, and that was not what a covenant was. It was a promise, but it was like the strongest form of promise you could possibly, it was the Highest standard of legal, if there was such thing as a legal agreement in that day, a covenant was it. Because when you made a covenant with a person, you're saying, I promise to do A, B, C, you promise to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to seal this together with blood on our lives, which means that if I fail to keep my part of the covenant, then I am putting myself under penalty of death. I would rather die than fail to keep my word to you. That's what you're saying. And David said, holy cow, we're walking under the covenant we have with God. God's not going to fail. I know the God that I serve. I hung out with him in the field. He helped me kill the lion and the bear. I'm standing under the covenant. See, they responded in fear. David walked out on the battlefield because he understood the promise that he had from God to always walk with him, to never fail him, to never forsake him. David understood what it was like to operate under covenant. Now, the problem is this. As the New Testament church, we don't necessarily operate under the Old Testament covenant that God had with his people, but we do operate under a new covenant bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. 
Okay? When he was speaking to his disciples, he's like, hey, uh, here's a new covenant that I give you in my blood. A new covenant. Most Christians, most Christians lead defeated lives because we do not know how to operate in the covenant that God has spoken over us in the New Testament. See, we don't realize that there's a part that God does, but there's a part that we're supposed to do too in this covenant. And it starts, it starts with obedience to him. It starts with obedience to him. And I know what you're saying. Well, how can we be obedient to God if we don't know God? Well, you have to be obedient to his conditions for salvation, which are to say, hey, we've sinned. We need Jesus to forgive us, and we're going to repent, which means that we're going to turn away from that old lifestyle of sin and turn ourselves in a new direction and walk forward in our relationship with him. That's a qualifier. We have access to salvation because we are obedient through the process of repentance. Okay. Now, repentance is one thing. Relationship and obedience. I want you to hear me again. Relationship with God and obedience to the word of God. That's our part. That's our part to make sure that we're operating under the covenant of God. Now, I was talking to somebody, uh, not just somebody, some bodies, years and years and years of ministry experience. They get mad at God because they say God lets their whole life fall apart when that's not the case. You can't live your life in direct disobedience to the word of God. Even after you've received salvation, you can't live your life in direct disobedience to the word of God, doing everything that the Bible says to not do and expect God to pour his blessings out on your life. It doesn't work that way. We have to be obedient to the word of God. Relationship changes our heart, which causes us to have the desire to be obedient to the word of God. And it's through being obedient to the word of God that we operate under the protection of the word of God and the blessing of the word of God. Okay, if I went up to a cliff that was 300 feet tall and I jumped off the cliff and I fell 300 feet down, pancake at the bottom, okay? Is it God's fault that I died because he didn't protect me or is it my fault because I didn't respect the law of gravity? It's my fault, right? Okay, listen, it's not God's fault if all hell breaks loose in your life, if you're walking in direct rebellion to the word of God. It's your fault because you're choosing to put yourself in dangerous positions and opening up the door for the enemy to come into your life. It's only through relationship and obedience that we're able to operate under the covenant protection and under the blessing of God in our lives. Like I've, I'm married to my wife, Kelly. Okay, that's a big shocker. I'm married to my wife. I know that. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm married to her. Legally, legally, we're married. Okay? Uh, we have a legal covenant of marriage between us. Now, check this out. Legally, I'm married to her. But if I want to experience the full blessing of our relationship, then I have to move past the legal standing of marriage and build a relationship with my wife. Who cares if we've been married for 30 years, if we don't talk to each other for 30 years? Legally, we're still married, but we have no relationship. And I think this is where a lot of Christians find themselves because they've made an agreement with Jesus once upon a time and they think that that's going to carry over, but they haven't cultivated that relationship and they don't understand why they don't have the blessing or the thing that the Bible says they're supposed to have when they haven't cultivated the relationship necessary to be able to walk in the blessing that comes from that legal binding agreement. Is this making sense? Now, if I go outside and it's raining... I've got an umbrella. The umbrella is in my possession. I have it. I can use this umbrella anytime I want to. All I have to do 
is activated. But if I walk outside with this simple umbrella and this stupid, simple illustration that I'm using this morning, if I walk outside with this umbrella and it's raining and I don't activate it, does it do me any good? Now, I still got the umbrella, right? I still got the potential covering that comes from the umbrella to protect me from the rain. But until I activate it, until I activate the covering of God, through relationship and through obedience to the word of God, I don't have this right here. I'm going to get rained on. But when I activate this umbrella, now I'm protected under the covenant protection of this umbrella for the sake of this illustration. It's going to keep me from getting wet because I'm doing my part. I've activated the umbrella according to the instructions. Okay? Same thing, same thing works with your relationship with God. If you step out of a relationship and if you step out of obedience, then you don't have access to this the way that you could if you would follow the guidelines in order to access the covering that God wants to put in your life. Making sense? Okay, this is a problem for a lot of Christians, because we walk into battles and we walk into seasons of our lives where we're going to need to have the provision of God, the protection of God over our lives. We're going to need to be able to walk in the blessings of God, things that he wants to pour out on us in order to use us more effectively in who he's called us to be, and we hit those seasons unprepared, and we face a Goliath not being ready. You know, there's some stuff that the Bible says in the New Testament that we have through our relationship with Jesus. I want to run through some of this stuff with you because every one of these things I'm fixing to share with you as we get ready to close this morning, it deals directly with a lot of the common issues or giants that we're going to face in our lives. The first one is this, that we are free from sin and can overcome temptation. Did you know that? That in Christ, you're free from the power of sin over your life, and you have the ability to overcome temptation, but it does not work outside of a strong relationship with Jesus because you have to be in Christ in order to be free from sin. You have to be in Christ in order to have the strength to stand up under temptation. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That's what the Bible says. But in Christ, we are heirs and co-heirs. Okay, too many of us are identifying ourselves with who we used to be before Jesus. And when we look in the mirror, all we see are the failures, all we see are the mistakes, all we see are the people that we've slept with, all we see are the parties that we've been to, all we see are the abortions that we've had, all we see are the, just the ways that we have blown it in our lives. We don't see ourselves in the true light. We don't see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. We don't see ourselves in the way that Jesus paid the price for us to be able to be seen. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. The Bible says that those that are in Christ are a new creation. Everybody say new. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We're heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Don't let the enemy lie to you and discourage you and destroy your self-worth and get you all depressed thinking that you're not who God says that you are. You are who God says that you are. You're an heir and a co-heir in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors in, in Jesus. In Jesus. Not outside of Jesus, but in Jesus we are more than conquerors more than conquerors. That means we don't fight for a victory in the battle. That means that we fight with victory in the battle. And the battle that we're going through is almost like an orchestrated dance to prepare us for the next battle that we're going to face because we operate with spiritual victory in our relationship with Christ. We're more than conquerors. The Bible also says that God is working in all things for our good. That means that no matter what we're facing in life, we have this promise that in Christ, in a strong, proper relationship with him, lining up with his word, that no matter what we're facing, God is able to take even the most d disastrous of situations and step in and work it 
for our good on the other side. He's able to make something good come from it. Those trials that we're facing, producing perseverance in our lives so that on the other side, we can be mature and complete and not lack anything. The Bible also says that he'll take care of me when I seek him first. He'll take care of you when you seek him first. When we put him first in everything, God will take care of us. Man, there's peace in knowing that. There's peace in knowing that if I have a solid relationship with God and I put him first and I honor him with my life and I'm obedient to his word and my life, Jesus said, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, I will add all these things to you. I'll take care of all this stuff. You don't have to stress and worry about the things of life like everybody else in the world stresses and worries about it. I will take care of it. Now, that's some powerful promises. Powerful promises that we have. Just, and that's just a few. That's just a few of the things that we have at our disposal through our relationship with Jesus. And when you begin to understand that and you see who you are, it really doesn't matter what you face in life. See, David understood that. He paid the price in the field and had a relationship with God. He paid attention and knew that God was preparing him and delivering through the battle with the lion and the bear so that when he stood on the field of battle and looked at Goliath, he already had every tool in his arsenal that he needed because he knew he was standing in covenant with an eternal God who would not break his promises to him. Now, you and I are in the same situation. My question to you today in here, my question to you guys online is this. What is it that we're facing right now that is so big that God can't defeat? What is it that we're dealing with in life right now that has us so stressed out and so worried and so frazzled that God can't handle? See, the problem is we haven't prepared ourselves for the day of battle. The problem is that our relationship with God isn't as strong as it needs to be. The problem is that we're not paying attention and letting God grow us and develop us through those seasons of life so that when we step out on the battlefield, we're prepared to face Goliath. The problem is we're not operating under the blessing and covenant of God because we're not taking our walk with God as serious as we should and we're leaving gaps in our armor for the enemy to, to, to defeat us. Guys, I want to challenge you today. Listen, do the same thing David did. And let's get ourselves to the place where we can, listen to me now, defeat the giant before we face the giant. Because the victory comes before the battle. The victory comes before the battle. It comes in how we pay the price in prayer. It comes in how we pour the, water, well, the word of God over our lives. It comes in how we live out obedience to the word of God in our lives. It is on us. It's on us. And when we move forward in those things and we allow God to change us and grow us and prepare us, there is no limit to what God can do in and through us. See, when we start to step out in that kind of faith and in that kind of trust and we see giant after giant after giant fall in our lives, see, we, we, we begin to rise up and operate and move out in a level of faith like you just read about people doing in the Bible. But I want to know where the warriors of God are today. I want to know where the people are that are going to drop the giants in this country that are mocking the kingdom of God right now. I want to know where the warriors of faith are that are going to pay the price in the closet of prayer, that are going to allow themselves to go through the process to be the people that God has called them to be, that are going to line their lives up with the word of God so that we can operate in the power and the anointing and the blessing that Jesus himself gave his life for us to operate in. It's time for us as Christians and it's time for us as a church to stop shortchanging the power that we had to operate in and it's time for us to rise up and everything Jesus provided for us and move forward and take this land for him. Is anybody in the house or online with me this morning? It's time for the church to rise up. That means it's time for me. That means that's time for you. Oh, what, what are you facing in your life right now? That's so distracting. That's so impossible. Nothing. There's nothing. Nothing. God cannot give us the victory over. 1 Samuel 17, verse 51. I love this. 
It says that David ran and stood over him after he had hit Goliath with a stone. And he took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. How did David kill Goliath on the field of battle? See, a lot of people think that David killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. David knocked down Goliath with a sling and a stone. He killed Goliath after Goliath had fallen. He killed Goliath with Goliath's own sword. Could it be that the very weapon that the enemy is using to try to destroy you would end up being the very weapon that God uses in your favor to destroy the enemy. David went out on the field of battle without a sword, but the sword was there and it was provided for. The weapon that was going to kill Goliath was provided for David, but it was not there until David went out on the field of battle. See, David had to trust God one more time to fill in the gaps in his life. David went out there, dropped Goliath, drew the sword, and the very weapon that was intended to kill David was used to kill the giant that was in front of David. What are we facing today that's so impossible that God cannot give us the victory over? There's not one thing. There's not one thing, church. There's not one thing, everybody watching online, there's not one thing that he cannot equip us to overcome. But we've got to... Make sure that we have relationship, that we stay in the process, and that we stay in the covenant. And if we do those three things, we'll see victory just like David did. Bow your heads and close your eyes in the house this morning. Everybody watching online, bow your heads and close your eyes.